Oh, Father, by the power of your slain Son on the cross at Calvary, we do stand forgiven before you today. But that is only the beginning, O Lord. Edify us with the word of God. We ask in Jesus' name you be present in this meeting by your Holy Spirit and perfect the words of your servant and let them sink down into the hearts of the hearers that we might grow thereby. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And be seated. I'm going to ask you one more time to open your Bibles this morning to chapter 9 of the book of Romans. Not one more time for the book of Romans, but one more time for chapter 10. Okay? Yeah, there's a few more chapters. But chapter 10, and I'm going to finish with this this morning. We won't do it complete justice, as you know. The Word of God is very powerful and full of meaning. But I'm going to read to you this morning from Romans chapter 10, verses 16 through 21 this morning. Well, let me start in verse 15 where Paul writes this, How shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing. In hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed, their sound has gone out to all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. But I say, did Israel not know? First, Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. But Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. But to Israel, he says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. I'll add two more verses. I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. Father, in Jesus' name, I would ask that you would add your presence To this, the proclamation of your holy word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I decided to add verses for a particular reason. Um, Let me make a confession to you this morning. I've been preparing sermons and preaching every Sunday for 28 years. Um, Ten years right here in this pulpit. (laughs) But let me ask you this. Those of you who study the Word, have you ever gone to the Word and just read through it 
and maybe thought, you know, I've really heard enough of this. You ever done that? The Word of God ought to be read slowly. It ought to be read in such a way that we take in each word and phrase and put it in a context. And if the context isn't real obvious to you, go back further and give it even a bigger picture in the context, and you'll find the meaning. But my confession is this. Paul is really laboring over his sorrows for the Jews who are just not responding to the gospel. He's laboring over it. He began chapter 9 that way. He began chapter 10 that way, and he's ending chapter 10 that way. And I read the next two verses so you could see he begins chapter 11 in the same way. He's personally concerned that the Jews aren't receiving the word of God the way the Gentiles are. They're being provoked to jealousy by a foolish nation. Those who did not seek him found him. And he's quoting from their own scriptures. And so when I think I've heard just about enough of this, I realize something. Though Paul was bemoaning the lack of response from his countrymen, the Jews, the Holy Spirit had something else in mind. Because in Paul's day, the people of God were the Jews. And in our day, they are the evangelical Christians. And I can see how 2,000 years after this was written, the people of God are the ones who, it seems, have lost their first love. You know, we study the book of Ephesus on Thursday evenings at the Bible study. And um, as we go through it, we see that the apostle is teaching and, um, and preaching to the, to the people of Ephesus that they have so many spiritual gifts and powers at their disposal, and they're just not using them. And then you switch over to Revelation chapter 2, and the first church the Lord upbraids is the church of Ephesus, a great church, one of the great cities of all time, second only to Rome in the ancient world. And they had all these things that the Lord commended about them, but they had, he said, left their first love. I wonder what that means, except that they had forgotten the zeal and the love they had when they first became Christians. And they forgot that the only or the most fundamental response to a love of Christ is worship of God. And they were falling away from it. And so where Paul is so frustrated with his fellow Jews for not seeing what was so clearly written and clearly warned them in their scriptures from Genesis all the way to Malachi. And he quotes from several sources in the Old Testament. It seems that extends now to to Christian believers. And so when I am overwhelmed or when I'm frustrated that Paul just keeps staying on this same issue over and, and it comes up over and over again. I can see the work of the Holy Spirit talking to us about the people of God today. Renew your first love of which is Christ and come out and hear the gospel of God and do not lose your love of the word of God and open the scriptures in your home and at your dinner table and with your children. And so Paul writes, verse 16, 
Have they not all obeyed the gospel? For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So once again, Paul is concerned to explain to the Jewish people that his message is not new. You know what's interesting? When they came out of the upper room on the the day of Pentecost, they went down to the streets. Now it's Pentecost, one of the great pilgrim feasts, where all the Jews from the three continents met once again in Jerusalem, and they came down, if you remember, they were from all the different countries, right? Parthians, Medes, Libyans. There's a whole long list of where they all came from, but they were Jews, And thousands of them received the word of God. But this is decades later now. And for all intents and purposes, the Christians had been expelled from Jerusalem. There was still the Jerusalem church there, led by the Lord's brother James. But for the most part, it had moved to Antioch and to Ephesus and to other, what we might say, pagan cities, but Gentile cities around the world. And the Jews were troubling Paul in his ministry wherever he went. And so it's breaking the apostle's heart that his countrymen can't see the message that was originally tailored for them. And so he's trying to show that the gospel, it has some new aspects to it, but it's not an innovation. It was not undeclared until this moment. It didn't just spring up. Rather, it's the fulfillment of the ancient message of Scripture from the very beginning. So you can see his frustration. How could they not see? Now, we've spent a number of weeks considering the phenomenon of preaching. Preaching, which means to earnestly contend for a thing. That's the customary path to salvation. We hear the preaching. We receive the Word of God. We receive faith in Christ, and so we are saved. A person must believe to be saved. I can't imagine someone being in heaven not believing in Christ. It just doesn't make any sense to us. It's ludicrous. But to believe a person, to believe a person must have heard. And to hear a person must be told. And Paul was not remiss to point out that this is the ordinary ordinary way of receiving information. Isn't that how we receive it? Somebody speaks, right? Somebody hears, and then an assessment is made as to the content of the message heard. That's why it's very important that our content is tailored to the true meaning of the gospel. So surely there's this consideration of the veracity of the information we receive, but also of the character of the messenger. Today, you can't just hear somebody say something and believe it. You have to wonder um, what his particular biases are. That's how I assess the truth or falsehood of something I've heard. Believing has to do with a personal, rational assessment of information together with a personal assessment of the source of that information. Right? You all know that if you watch cable news. There's certain places where you like what you hear, certain places that you don't. One may be truer than the other. One may just be your confirmation bias. You'd rather hear this than this. That happens. Um, But really, in order to know truth, we have to assess the message itself and the prejudices of the messenger. And Paul was running into trouble with this. 
he was having trouble being considered a, a reliable source for a number of reasons. Number one, from the Christians, because he persecuted them. Right? And number two, from the Jews, because he persecuted the Christians and repented of doing that. They thought he repented in a bad way. So what did he do about it? What did he do to regain his credibility? It's very simple. And it's very characteristic of the apostle to offer evidence to his audience that is quite unimpeachable. Evidence that is unimpeachable to a Jewish audience. Evidence that is unimpeachable to an evangelical audience is the scriptures. Don't speak of your own accord out of your own wisdom. Preach to them from the word of God that we all claim to believe. It should have an impact. And so the frustration for Paul is the word of God isn't having the impact it should have on the people who claim to love the word of God and consider it sacred. And so you can see his frustration. And so when I consider the whole picture, I lose my frustration that Paul seems so intent on letting us know how sorry he is that his countrymen are not receiving the word. Maybe the way you feel when your close loved ones don't receive it from you. When a person is trying to communicate the gospel of Christ to a Jewish audience, it is to be expected that there will be a certain level of suspicion and doubt. Clearly, to Jewish ears, the gospel of Christ was seen as quite a new thing, a new innovation. Christ on the scene was a surprise to them. I labored in the last few weeks to show you he shouldn't have been a surprise. He wasn't even a surprise to the wise men who came from Babylon or Persia or somewhere. It was a surprise to Herod, the great scholar of the Scripture. shouldn't have been a surprise. That's Paul's frustration. It even was a surprise to him while he was still the persecutor Saul of Tarsus. And so he was um, having trouble being considered a reliable source for these reasons. It was a surprise to the leaders that Christ was so popular. His power, his rhetoric, his intellect, his familiarity with the scriptures were quite amazed them all, but not in a good way. They didn't like it. It would be one thing to have been in Jerusalem when Christ was there, but what about 20 or 30 years later, which is what we're talking about here? 20 or 30 years later, a whole new generation of Jewish people came into being, right, and grew up. And all they knew about the Christ of Jerusalem was that he was a criminal who was crucified. And probably thought it was a righteous act. Got rid of one more false prophet. You know, every generation, it seems, has to be retaught the very basics. And that was frustrating to Paul. So he stays on this issue about the Jews. It was their habit to contrast Jesus with the message of Jesus. Or rather, it was their habit to contrast Jesus and the message of Jesus with Moses and the message of Moses. Right? Paul saw this, though, as an advantage. It was quite a simple matter for a scholar of the scriptures like Paul to demonstrate that what's being said in the present 
is what was predicted in the past. Jesus perfected the method. He even said this to his detractors. Do not think I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how shall you believe my words? That's all Paul is saying. If you believed Moses, you wouldn't have any trouble with the appearance of the Savior. The Pharisees said of him elsewhere, we know God spoke through Moses. And this always amazes me. My translation says, as for this fellow, we do not know where he's from. Imagine being there, the last judgment, and you see the Lord, and he says to to them, you know who I am. I'm that fellow that you didn't know was spoken to by God. So the apostle has declared and demonstrated quite effectively that salvation is by faith in Christ. He's labored through several chapters just to show us that that is the truth. We are justified by faith in Christ. He's gone on to declare that faith in Christ is a gift of God. You don't work it up. It's not of works that anyone should boast. He said very famously to the Ephesians, So Jesus Christ is the agent of our salvation, and the preaching of the gospel is the method of our salvation. In that sequence of salvific events, can I use the word salvific this morning? Salvific, the the spell check hates the word, but salvific means all things pertaining to salvation. It is a real word. I know I make up words, but I didn't make that one up. In that sequence, sequence of salvific events, hearing becomes the link between knowing the way or not knowing. Hearing is the link. As we've said, there's a general call and there's an efficacious call. Everyone hears, but not everyone responds. To Christ, that's not hearing. In other words, all hear the same gospel, but not all internalize it in the same way. Some hear it to their benefit, some to their detriment, And so Paul anticipates this argument by saying, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. So what's he doing? He's going back and he's showing that Isaiah is preparing the Jews to anticipate what Paul is actually saying here. Sadly to some, hearing is not believing. In Paul's treatment of the subject at hand, not believing is equated with not hearing. It's like, uh, here's my illustration, you ready? It's like the husband who hears the wife's voice in the other room, but he doesn't internalize the content of her message. He's heard that voice a lot of times. There's a lot of information. You know, whenever that happens to me, she says, but I told you, and I said, but you always tell me husbands don't listen. I'm just being a good husband. But that's what it is. It's sort of like the voice in the background saying the same thing, and you've just tuned it out. By the way, those who you don't know, my wife does not nag me. Just throwing that in there for a safe exit for me later. (laughs) She's also Sicilian. It gets dangerous. Where was I anyway? All right. um, So I hope you see the, the humor in my illustration, but it's not so unrealistic a comparison, really. 
for the gospel to the Jews at large became a nagging and unlikely message carried about by insignificant and unlikely messengers. The apostles were really unlikely messengers to have the saving message of Christ. They were fishermen. I never wake up in the morning and say, you know, I'm going to go down to the pier. I'm going to go down to New Bedford. I really want to get some wisdom from the fishermen down there. It just isn't the way you think about society. But God goes against all these things, all these conventions. You may remember that when Jesus preached in his hometown of Nazareth, that the hearers were amazed. Why? Because he knew something. What they said was this, and I quote from Matthew. When he had come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue... So they were astonished, and they said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? In other words, isn't he from down the street? Is not his mother called Mary? And here's a verse, if you're Catholic, and his brothers, James, Josie, Simon, and Judas. And I say that because in that tradition, Mary was considered a perpetual virgin who didn't have any other children, but there it is. Um, Or when the apostles were heard by the Sanhedrin, Luke writes this. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. How did uneducated and untrained men have such wisdom, have such knowledge of the deep things of God? How could this be? And then Luke writes, and then they realized they had been with Jesus. I've always said faith increases mental acuity. It actually makes you smarter. The world would say that it makes us dumber, but they don't know. The faith makes us smarter because we had been with Jesus. So marvel at our wisdom. When the, um, so is that not the way information's been received or rejected throughout history? Rather than assess the truth or falsehood of the message, we assess the truth or falsehood of the messenger. And unless someone, something intercedes to redirect the hearer from his prejudicial view of the messenger, he's quite unable of himself to discern the truth or falsehood of the message. But for Paul, he found the obvious way around this conundrum. He did not draw from his own vast resource of intellect and education, and it was vast. Rather, he drew from the only source source that both messenger and hearer both claim to believe. And that's the scriptures. You may remember the Lord's division of scripture from the Gospel of Luke when he said in Luke 24, 44, he said, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. All things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And then we get this editorial note from Luke. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. He opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. He did another act of revelation. Just like the act of revelation that inspired the writer in the first place, he he inspired the hearer to understand what the writer was writing. It's an awesome connection. So Paul employs the same tactic. He quotes a prophet, Isaiah. 
and then a psalm. He quotes from David, and then finally a word from Moses. And so from Isaiah 53, verse 1, he asked, Who has obeyed our report? Now, it's my opinion that when a person, particularly a Jewish scholar like Paul, points out a verse of Scripture to his fellow Jews, that he believes they're aware of the context as well as the ensuing passage. So let's look at it. Isaiah writes, Who has believed our report? Did you notice the poetic license the apostle took with the verse? Isaiah wrote, Who has believed our report? And Paul wrote, who has obeyed our report. He changes the word believed to obey. You know, he does that a lot, and it really bothers the scholars. He does that a lot. But what we have to remember is Paul is also inspired of the Holy Spirit to bring out something of the word of God anciently that was not brought out anciently. I've told you that it's my opinion we need a new word for believe. It seems to me like believe's fallen on hard times in our society. Maybe surrender. I have, I have suggested surrender is probably a better word because you're giving your whole self to Christ. It isn't just a mental ascension. Oh, yeah, I, I believe that fact, right? Many people believe in the existence of Christ. I mean, any scholar worth his salt believed that uh, Jesus of Nazareth was uh, treated in the way that the... Um, the Gospels report that he was treated. Most everyone believes that. That's not a saving belief. So surrender might be the word, but belief has fallen on hard times in our culture. John said that obedience is the evidence of love for Christ. Paul said that obedience is the evidence of faith. And so Isaiah continues saying of the future Messiah... And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. I always found that an amazing thing for Isaiah to have said. He's sort of saying that the humanity of Christ, to look upon his humanity, it's nothing special. He's just another Jewish person. Isn't that what he's saying here? He has no comeliness, and when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. He's despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Now the Jews had to know that context from Paul's reference. And yet this generation or generation and a half later from the time of the crucifixion probably knew very little about the actual details of Christ's life and teachings. The only gospel that could have been written at the time would have been Matthew. And it wouldn't have been well circulated. So Paul demonstrates from the prophet's own words that the Messiah that came had all the characteristics of the Messiah that was predicted to come. He was afflicted by men. He wasn't well received. He was smitten by God. We could say he couldn't be the Messiah. He's hanging on a cross. But it was predicted that God would smite him and afflict him. Somewhere along the way, the Jews had conceived for themselves a more glorious coming for their Messiah as well as a more impressive resume for their Messiah. They didn't want a carpenter's son. It didn't fit into the package they had 
presumed the Messiah would come as. Rather than to be born into a family from a dusty village in Galilee to a humble carpenter and his wife. But Paul doesn't stop there. For if there's any reasoning with these intransigent Jews, it ought to be reasoning from Scripture. But if they consider themselves the experts in Scripture, why should they take instruction from an itinerant, traitorous Pharisee, namely Paul? who's already been, if Paul ran for office, you know what they'd call him? A flip-flopper. They'd say he used to do this and that. That's what repentance is. We all flip-flop at some point in our lives. It's called growing up, too. People say to me, you see them at a class reunion or something. Not that I go to those, but you see people, and they say, boy, you've changed. And I'm like, I'm 67 years old. I hope I changed some things since you knew me. However, the most powerful way to reach these people is to show them from their own sacred writings that the gospel of Christ is not new. It was always predicted, and it happened as predicted. The word of God came to them just as it was written. The embellishments were purely personal imaginations and cultural adaptations. And so Paul refers to David who wrote, "...their sound has gone out to all the earth." in their words, to the ends of the world. David sang of the heavens declaring the glory of God. He's quoting, of course, from Psalm 19. Creation contains the gospel. Friends, the wise men read the gospel in the stars. Creation contains the gospel. Anyone who has meditated upon the words of this psalm would have seen that the creative order has divine speech. It's nothing new. Any Jew brought up with the reading and with the singing of the sacred psalms would have had the opportunity to know that the psalmist wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. When he wrote words like this, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. The firmament the skies. God is revealed in them. Day unto day utters speech. Night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their sound has gone out through all the earth and their works to the end of the world. The universal broadcasting of God's word through various means other than mere human speech is a theme throughout the scriptures. Consider John's gospel when it talks about the birth of Christ right at the beginning when John writes, He, the word, Christ, was the true light that gives light to every man coming into the world. Something of the light of Christ is given to every man coming into the world. There's a sense in which the gospel of Christ is born into us. The light of truth is displayed not only in the stars or in the mountains or the oceans of creation, but in the rational light that shines out of every human pair of eyes. Every man's spirit shines forth the very image and likeness of holy God. There's no one in this earth, the most despicable character you would see, a Christian should not say, that man is not made in the image of God. 
For God hath said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. You ready for this? Male and female, he created them. That used to be something that everyone knew when they came into the world. Now they don't know. They're not sure anymore. For since the creation of the world, Paul writes in this epistle, since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made. What are the things that are made? We're the things that are made. Something of God should have been understood in everyone since the beginning. But I think the effects of the fall are cumulative, don't you? I think when the fall first happened, we weren't quite um, so corrupted uh, spiritually and physically as we are today. Well, people lived hundreds of years. <laughs> That's part of the proof of it. Um, there remains, even in fallen humanity, friends, a whisper of deity. There is something in fallen man that God wants to retrieve. There's divine light within each breast, dim though it may be. There's a capacity to nurture that light and to see the things that God has prepared for those who love him. You know, we look at the, the mountains, the ranges. I mean, it's awesome to travel our country just to see the, the expanse of creation. And anyone can look at that and assume some kind of divine intervention to have caused such glorious beauty. But the Christian looks at that, and we have a personal relationship with the creator of that. There's a capacity to nurture that light and to see the things that God has prepared for those who love him. And the food... Or the source of growth and nourishment to fuel that light has always been the word of God. So Paul uses it. So we use it. Peter wrote of this very thing. He said, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. So the word of God feeds and nourishes our born again spirits. And so at this point in the treatise, the apostle sums up his entire message to the Jews. Hear, he says, hear what the Lord has said since the very beginning. Since creation first spoke of his glory to the creatures he made in his image. Christ is not an interloper on the scene. The gospel's not a new innovation. Preaching is no mere intrusion into your personal lives. Believing, trusting, surrendering to Christ is the only path to salvation, and it has always been so. If you treasure your life at all, if you would have any hope of eternal life, praise God for the gift of hearing, and know that hearing is by the word of God. And so his summary is simple. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Friends, hearing has fallen on hard times. Even hearing is less intentional than listening. 
You notice there's no listening. Did anyone see the, um, the uh, House of Representatives hearing <laughs> with Robert F. Kennedy? I mean, we don't even want to hear something. Did anyone see it? Parts of it? Hearing has fallen on, on hard times. We think if we hear it, it's somehow bad. We have to, we have to shut it up. That's been done to preachers since, well, since Paul, <laughs> since Christ, since the prophets that they killed. Listening is all but extinct in our culture, in our time. If it cannot be said in a soundbite, it's not worth hearing. If it cannot be inscribed on a t-shirt or a bumper sticker or a billboard or a pop-up advertisement, we have no time for it. If it's said by a person whom we've already discarded from our affections due to contrary opinions, I don't like that guy, he never agrees with me. Remember we talked about King Ahab last week? He, he, he got in league with Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, and they went out to battle. But before they did, they consulted the prophets, and he got together 400 prophets, and they all agreed. And Jehoshaphat wasn't convinced, and he said, isn't there one more? And he said, well, yeah, there's Micaiah, but I hate him because he never agrees with me. This is nothing new. He never prophesies good for me, only evil. As it turns out, a prophecy is still a prophecy. Like rebellious children, when we hear contrary opinions, we block our ears and run away shouting. La, 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 la. <laughs> I, was just, I was wondering whether I should do something like that. But I, I've been variously accused of stressing doctrinal distinctives too much. You know, doctrine is so important. Remember, if you go back to the, uh, again, to Revelation, the, to the, um, you know, the letters, the revelations to the seven churches, he says of, the, um, uh, of one of the churches, they received the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which I hate. <laughs> Jesus hates certain doctrine, and he loves certain doctrine. Doctrine is just another word for truth. And so I've been, it's been said to me that I stress doctrinal distinctives too much. And I'm less concerned with the, and I'm going to go like this, real issues pertaining to evangelism and the gospel. So to this I would say that I don't teach about doctrine to win arguments. I preach doctrine to win souls to Christ. But since faith comes by hearing, it's sometimes inevitable that to win a soul, you have to first win an argument. Now, you can't really argue someone into the faith. I, I hope you know that. So here, Paul's concerned primarily with the Jews of his day, his beloved countrymen. His message is to all, but to the Jews most particularly, he makes the case that due to the fact that the gospel message is no new innovation. The gospel message has been preached throughout the Old Testament that the Jews above all people have the least excuse before God for claiming to not have heard it. They have heard it. And so the frustrating refrain of the risen Christ to John says, he who has an ear, let him hear. And he says it a lot of times. He who has an ear... Let him hear. In other words, I'm not nagging you. I'm giving you content to save your soul. Don't tune it out. He who has an ear, use your ear. You have to actually say that. 
And it's in Revelations 2, verses 7, 11, and 17, and 29, and Revelations 3, verses 6, 13, and 22. I mean, he says it a lot. Friends, the Spirit spoke through the Scriptures then, and the Spirit speaks through the Scriptures now. So if the Scripture is concerned with doctrine, which is truth, it's increasingly necessary due to the ignorance and the apathy of our times to insist upon speaking and teaching and preaching the truth of God's Word. To tire of preaching is to tire of hope for salvation. It's the path. For faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. I have two more things to say as I close. (laughs) One, number one, content is very important. What we say is very important. And number two, worship is our witness. Don't think of it as optional. Worship is the fundamental response to to the God we claim to love. He's the only one we worship. We don't worship anything else, I hope. There's so much that goes out today in the name of the gospel of Christ that is not the gospel of Christ. I saw a sign the other day. Karen and I were in the truck. We were driving around, and we saw a sign on a church. And it said something like this. I I should have taken a picture, but I didn't. It said, is your life a mess? Seek the Messiah. I'm glad you didn't like that. I was worried because I make fun of these things and people think, boy, that's that's how I preach the gospel. Isn't content more important than that? Like that's the best you can do? I saw one one day, it was up the street here, um, God is looking for spiritual fruit, not religious nuts, or something like that. I mean, I get it. I have a sense of humor. I can can laugh. We all have different senses of humor. But if that's your message to the world, I think you've got to rethink what the gospel is. Now, you know I'm allergic to cliches. I break out in hives. I don't use them. I convulse over tacky trivialization. I had to pull over when I saw that, open the door. But it's worse than both trivia and cliches because it perpetuates a false gospel. Now, of course, Christ cleaned up our lives. He did mine, but that's not the gospel. Jesus isn't a clinician in a white robe. It perpetuates a man-centered clinical view of salvation that's preached from pulpits all over the world today. It infers that Christ came to straighten out our lives, get us better jobs, get our employers to understand us better. He came to die. Sin is the issue, not our life's messes. He did not die so that we would never be depressed. He did not suffer the nails and the thorns and the public ridicule to improve our personal relationships. I had one preacher say to me one time, and I asked him early on in my Christian life, I was listening to a lot of the uh, charismatic health and wealth sort of teaching, and I said to him, what do you think about that? And he changed my life with with a simple word. He said, do you really think Christ would suffer on the cross so I could have a Mercedes? And it just, I said... 
Uh, of course. Of course. He didn't suffer the nails and the thorns to improve our relationships or ease our troubled consciences or take away our addictions or to provide more profitable employment or healthier eating and exercise habits. It's not what it, he did. Now, are these improvements often the effects of close association with Christ? Yes, they are. He said, I've come that they may have life and they may have, have it more abundantly. I praise God for the abundant life that Christians have. But our life is abundant because there's love between the members. There's fellowship between fellow believers. There's the abundance of seeing our children and our children's children walking after the Lord in a time when that's very hard to acculturate in a, in a child. So many forces against it. But only after we've internalized the nature of our sin and the necessity of his sacrifice do those things come. Here's a wonderful solace that's only for Christians. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses understanding you know, when you pray for peace, you're praying for a peace that you understand. You know, you just want some noises to stop. But to meditate on the things of God and the word of God brings a peace beyond understanding. And it will guard your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. Yes, there are great benefits to believing in Christ. But you have to confront your sin to get to that place. So what we say is of grave importance. Content in our evangelism is paramount. Paul said this, and he said this in 1 Corinthians when he was talking about speaking in tongues with no interpreter. He said, if the trumpet makes an unclear sound, who will prepare for battle? I, I love that verse. We have to be clear. People have to know what we're talking about. It's not about messes. At some point in a discussion of life, there must come a discussion of death. See, that's the thing. At some point in your evangelism, it's going to be said, it's going to be recognized by the person you're talking to. So let me see if I've got this straight. You're going to heaven, and I'm not. And they haven't listened to anything you've said up to that point, so they're saying, you think I'm a bad person, and you're a good person. And isn't that how it works? And it's not always that we haven't communicated well. It's that Christ did not open their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. That's a work of the Holy Spirit. If the trumpet makes an unclear sound, who will prepare for battle? But friends, we, by and large, in the church, have the Spirit of God. Our minds are open to the scriptures. The scriptures are efficacious in teaching us new ground in truth. So at some point in a discussion of life, there has to become a discussion of death. Jesus declared at the tomb of the risen Lazarus, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live, and he who lives and believes in me shall never die. That's a powerful one-liner for the gospel, isn't it? 
so Christ-centered, not man-centered. But man is the beneficiary of hearing it and understanding it. Faith does not mean that we get whatever we want. It means that whatever we get, we still love God and worship him. And Paul said it again to the Philippians. He said, not that I speak with regard to need. (laughs) This is one of the prison epistles. He's in prison writing this. I'm not talking about my needs. I've learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I've learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so there's content in our evangelism. And my next point for the people of God has to do with worship. Weekly worship is the most fundamentally acceptable expression of our love for Christ. Whenever you're reading the scriptures and someone comes into contact with Christ, they immediately worship. They fall down on their face. Isaiah did it, thought he I am undone. I'm unclean. My lips are unclean. I live among people with unclean lips. All these people swearing all the time or something. Immediately thought he was undone. Cornelius fell down when he heard the word of God. They had to say, no, don't worship us. It's not about us. But he had the right idea. You know, Manoah, remember Manoah? Samson's father heard the word of God. He said, God appeared to me, so we're going to (laughs) die. There's only one thing you can do is plead with him. Fall down and he's, he's different than us. He's higher. He's high and lifted up. Worship is the, the one way we approach the living God. It's very important. All right, so weekly worship, as I've said, is the most fundamentally acceptable expression of our love for God. If he is our first love, friends, then worship is our first act of love. And isn't it fitting that he decided the first day of the week should be when we do that? Worship bespeaks love for Christ and service for the body of Christ. To lead a person to Christ, to set A new convert on a right path in Christ is to lead him or her to the gathering of the saints convened in his name. As he wrote to the Ephesians, for to him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ. You know the church is part of the glory of God? He fills it with his glory. And then he writes, to all generations forever and ever. It's occurred to me that we might be the last people that come out of the house in a couple of generations. Everyone else will be streaming each other, Zooming, right? Or whatever new thing you can do, probably holograms, probably have a room full of, you know, uh, transparent people or something, I don't know. But Christians come out. You know, I lived in, in Spring Valley. Anyone know Spring Valley in, in New York and Rochester County? Um, Westchester County. Um, and it was a very Jewish area. There was all Hasidic Jews. You know the Hasidic Jews? You've been down to um, Brooklyn and seen the Hasidic Jew communities. They have the, the derbies and the long braids, and they're all in black, and the women are dressed sort of like 
you know, Amish style. And um, on, because the whole town was Jewish, on Friday night, the lights went out. Because the Sabbath for the Jews is Saturday, but it begins on Friday, right? So all the lights went out. I, I assume it still goes on to this day. No cars were on the street, and all the Jews came out of their houses together as families with their Torahs in their hands, and they're walking to synagogue. They all came out. The whole world stopped, and they wouldn't use any power or anything until, until the Sabbath was over on Saturday evening. It was just a witness of who they are. And um, sadly, they're worshiping the wrong God. You know, I want you to know that Jews and Christians don't worship the same God. I know we talk about it that, that way, but our God has a son, and that's the only way you can worship him, just to point that out. But I'm talking about the act of worship. People who internalized that this was the great witness of who they are, they come out. So if my prophecy is true, then the Christians and the Hasidic Jews will be the last people that come out. <laughs> If Christ is our first love, then worship is our first act of love. Worship bespeaks love for Christ and service to the body of Christ. To lead a person to Christ is to lead him to the church. Why? Because that's where he'll grow. That's where the gifts are. What did he say to the Ephesians chapter 4? We're joined and knit together by what every joint supplies. How do you do that without a church? Confess your sins to one another. How do you do that without a church? Right? Be kind to all people, especially the household of faith. How do you do that without a church? Forsake not the assemblings of, of yourselves together as be, become the habit of son. How do, how do you do that without a church? Do this in remembrance of me, the Lord's Supper. How do you do that without a church? Weekly worship, congregational worship, regular, habitual, no excuses attendance to the praises and proclamations of the word of God that he's lovingly bestowed upon us in the form of the local church is the surest sign of who we really are. There's no greater witness of our fidelity to Christ than to gather in his name to hear his word on the schedule that he has approved. Just as the Apostle John said when he was in Patmos, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. You know, by that time, the Lord's Day was the name of the first day of the week to the Christians. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, and what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. And so I would say that the balance of the chapter, of chapter 10 of Romans, seems to me to reveal a kind of desperation in Paul. He's sort of rattling off rapid-fire scriptures to show his countrymen <clears throat> that they should have seen Christ coming, and they should have recognized him when he came, but it's not too late. And that's my claim in these times as well. Do not tire of the word of God. To tire of the word is to tire of Christ. It's the only 
sure source we have of who he was, who he is. So the writer of Hebrews says, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. That's the other reason we gather, because it helps the other person. You don't even know who the person is who's looking for you that morning. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. And so Paul addresses the stubbornness that he sees in his countrymen. He's willing to be rejected by them. He's willing to be accused and censured and tortured and stoned. You remember the list. But he's not willing to give up on them. And he's not willing to abandon his message because it's only by hearing the message that one may savingly receive the message. So he has to keep talking. And so the quotations come fast and hard. He says, but I say, did Israel not know? First, Moses says, I'll provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I'll move you to anger by a foolish nation. So don't be surprised that the Gentiles are coming in before you. It was prophesied. And then he says, but Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. But to Israel, he says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. That would be pretty hard to hear. That's kind of like the message Stephen lost his life for preaching, right? So I'll give you this benediction today. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Father, in Jesus' name, I ask, O Lord, that you would be pleased and blessed by this, the proclamation of your holy word. And Father, that we would recognize our responsibilities to, to own it, to teach it, and to worship you according to its dictates. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.